Question number three. What does godliness in the body look like in practice? Right. Now the answer... What we've seen in the answer to the two previous questions is that godliness in the body means living out the new life that we've been given by God the Father through the work of the Son and the Spirit. And as John Webster, and if you haven't read any of John Webster's work, you really ought to. He's one of the great ignored evangelical theologians of the, of the 20th century, 21st century. He died tragically young a few years ago, and he's a really great reformed theologian. And John says in his book Holiness that this ability to live a new life is what he calls the strange gift of evangelical freedom. He says it's a strange gift because it can only be known and exercised as we are converted from a lie. The lie that liberty is unformed and unconstrained self-actualization. It is evangelical because it is grounded in the joyful reversal and reconstitution of the human situation to which the gospel speaks. We may define it thus, he says, in evangelical freedom, I am so bound to God's grace and God's call that I am liberated from all other bonds and set free to live in truth. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. Freedom is inseparable from the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery of the Son's achievement present in the Spirit's power. I am faced with a new, incontrovertible and omnipotent reality, the reality of salvation, which says that I am alive because of righteousness, Romans 8.10. This reality is law in the sense that it's a given truth which determines my present and future, and forms my actions. But as such, it is the ground of my freedom, for it is established the fact that I have been set from another law, the law of sin and death, emancipated from self-destruction for life and reality. That's evangelical freedom. And as it goes on to say, this view of the nature of freedom goes against the misleading idea prevalent in modern society that freedom means the unfettered liberty to invent our own way of life. Modern accounts of freedom, he says, identify freedom as unfettered liberty for self-creation and therefore contrast freedom and nature. Freedom is the antithesis of the given, a move over and against any sense that I have a determinate identity. Evangelical freedom, by contrast, does not envisage being human as an utterly original making of life and history. Rather, to be human is to live and act in conformity with the given truth, the nature of what I am. A creature of grace, reconciled sinner, and caught up in the movement of the ways and works of God, in which I am pointed to a perfection, Roger, to be revealed at the last time. I am free as I find myself finally unencumbered by idolatry, false desire and vanity and are therefore enabled to fill out, actively to occupy and expand the role to which I am appointed. In evangelical freedom I am set free for reality and for the practices of holiness. I don't know why unless came in there. And for it should be for the practices of holiness. From this point of view, the polarisation of freedom and obedience which is endemic in modern anthropology is part of the pathology of the modern spiritual history of the self. In the freedom given to me in Christ, I am bound to God's grace, but God's grace is God's call. The holiness with which God consecrates 
is also a command. And so freedom involves conformity to the law. I am, in short, he says, sanctified for obedience. Now, as John Webster notes, there are very understandable reasons, going all the way back to the 16th century, if not before, why some Christians are wary about the idea that the Christian life involves obedience to law. You know, you you lob law into the discussion and, and hackles rise immediately. As he says, this is because we may fear that through the, the use of the law as a means of acquiring righteousness, as it were behind God's back through works of the law, you know, the idea that of self-justification, or we may associate the law with more f- mere formality and externalism in morals and religion that leaves the affections untouched. Law certainly, he says, may be an instrument of self-justification or of decadent legalism, a mere conformity to the letter. Ignoring the spirit. But a properly, that is evangelically defined, law is the shape of the life which God commands of the elect. It's the shape of the life which God commands of the elect. The degenerate use of the law can be uh, countered only by integrating it into the covenant of grace, which is the history of holiness. Abstracted from that covenant, abstracted that is from the work of Christ, law is certainly in league with sin and death, as Paul goes on in to say in some depth in Romans and Galatians. But within the drama of God's saving work, law is the given order of life, the trajectory along which our moral histories move. And that is what is meant by the term usus didacticus of the law. The law is a teacher, not a magistrate, instructing us in the way of holiness which flows from and corresponds to the goodness of God. So the law is there to show us what it means to live that new life that's been given to us by Christ. It doesn't give us that new life. It shows us it. It says, here it is, that's how you may live. And the word may is important. You may live like this because Christ has given you the gift of living like this. Now, if we inquire about the nature of the law to which we are enabled and called to conform we find that it is none other than the order God put into creation when he called the world into being. What C.S. Lewis in the Narnia stories, in a marvellous phrase, called the deep magic from the dawn of time. God is infinitely wise. And the Bible teaches that that creation exists as a result of that wisdom. In the words of the psalmist, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all. Psalm 104, verse 24. God is not only wise, he's also infinitely good. So the things that he creates are good. That is why at the end of the first creation account in Genesis, we are told that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 131. This truth is reiterated in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 4.4 where we are told that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving. So everything that God has made comes out of his wisdom and his goodness. And having created the world, God rested from all his works which he had done in creation, Genesis 2.3. God preserves what he's made and acts to bring it to the goal he intends for it. But he does not change it or created afresh. 
In the words of Karl Barth, it is part of the history of creation that God completed his work and confronted it as a completed totality. If you think of the book of Genesis, God ceases from his work. Creation is done. We're now in the Sabbath, when no work is done. And that means that there is an unchanging created order which, to quote Oliver O'Donovan, neither the terrors of chance nor the ingenuity of art can overthrow. Now, this point is generally accepted in terms of the physical laws which govern the material creation. We know, for example, the law of gravity has always existed and will always exist. We will not one day find out the law of gravity has been abrogated and we are floating towards the ceiling. What is not always recognised, however, is that this same is likewise true of the moral law which God has laid down for his creation. Thus, we will not wake up one day and find that it is acceptable to lie, murder, or steal. Now, the Bible teaches, obviously, that there is a world to come in which human beings will live in a way that transcends their life in this world. We will be as the angels, as Christ says. However, this transcendent life will be a fulfilment rather than a negation of God's action in creation. The basic order of things is fixed, and we are called to live in the light of it. And if you ask how we know that, well, Christ's resurrection shows us. Christ doesn't cease to be who he is as a created being in his humanity when he is raised and ascended. And so with all creation, the new creation is the renewal of creation. That's what the term means. Now... If the book of the biblical narrative, we find, of course, that there are laws given in the Old Testament which the New Testament teaches that the Christians need, need no longer literally observe, such as the laws written as temple ritual or to kosher food. However, we need to note that as Christ makes clear in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, these laws are not abolished, but rather fulfilled in a new way as a result of his coming. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. As Christians, we are called to discern how this fulfillment took place and to live accordingly. As Oliver Donovan explains, the law given by God to Israel cannot claim his immediately, but is part of the historical dialectic, the historical process through which the gospel of Christ was revealed. However, he says, this law was also a mediation of the universal good. To understand it, it is not enough to understand its contingency, its time-boundness, but we must understand its relation to the universal good as well. Hence, we detect within this law a revelation of created order and the good to which all men are called, a moral law by which every human being is claimed and which belongs fundamentally to man's welfare. The theologian's task in expounding the Old Testament is to allow the contingent and the universal to emerge distinctly. If, he says, the universal does not shine through the contingent, then what is done is not theology, but only history. They thought this then. If the universal does not shine through the contingent, through the time-boundness of the revelation then what is done is bad theology, not found in the narration of God's mighty deeds in saving history, and therefore inadequately Christian. Does everybody see that? You see the universal through the contingent, and both are equally important. Now, living in the universal order, which is reflected in the contingent provisions of the Old Testament law, 
and which has finally and fully been named, known through the coming of Christ, involves what Christian thought has traditionally described as mortification and vivification. To quote John Webster again, as mortification, holiness is the laying aside of that which has been put to death on the cross of, Jesus, of the Son of God. As vivification, holiness is the living out of that which has been made alive in the Son's resurrection. Mortification is thus a way of articulating how the new active life of the Christian succeeds and corresponds to the slaying of the old, death-laden existence of trespasses and sins. Vivification speaks of the active life as corresponding to the great Easter reality, you he made alive, Ephesians 2.1. Mortification and vivification, probably, properly conceived, are not two separate acts, but the same reality differently viewed. Nor are mortification and vivification, he says, themselves distinct acts, distinguishable from other works of the Christian. Rather, they are characteristic of all the patterns of activity that comprise the life of holiness. Putting to death and putting on are not acts alongside or in addition to other works. They are the character of the whole seen in all its parts. Mortification and vivification signify the extension of the baptismal pattern to the life of the Christian, so that Christ dying and rising in, not despite of all their objectivity and perfection, are the shape of the Christian's own personal history. To live in the power or in light of his death and resurrection under its tutelage is to seek to act so that in their own sphere and within their own very real limitations, our human lives give answer to grace. And the biblical foundation for this idea of mortification and vivification, putting off and putting on, is the teaching of Paul in Romans and Colossians. In Romans 6, 1-14, a text to which we keep on coming back because it's central to all this, Paul reminds the Christians in Rome that through their baptism they are dead to sin and alive to God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection, and that they are therefore called to live accordingly. He says... What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, he says, we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death, he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves death to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And how does he land it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, just to go back to Roger's question, the very fact that he says, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies, makes the point that that's a very real possibility. He is not beating the air. He is not coming up with an invisible opponent. He is saying that because he knows that they will be continually exposed to the temptation to do precisely that. The reality is that sin has no dominion over them. The power of sin has been broken. 
But there's a temptation to go back and live as as if that was not true. And Paul is reminding them that they need to live as if it is true. And every time they are faced with a temptation, and they will be constantly faced with it, they are to get on and live it out again. And that is the pattern of the life. Now as verses 12 to 14 of Romans at the end there make clear that new life which we've been given in Christ has to be manifested in our bodies. Listen to him, it's both negative, mortification, do not yield your members, that's bodily members, to sin as instruments of wickedness, and positively vivification, yield your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Opposition to sin and obedience to God is not just a disposition of the soul, it's not just a feeling, although it starts there, but something that is made real in the actions of the body. We see Paul making the same point in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with the Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your things that are above, not on things that are below, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then he will also appear with him in glory. And he says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once wrought when you lived in them, but for now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free moment, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness and patience, forbearing one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which you indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we know all this, but what the key point for our purposes is in this passage, we see the twin ideas of mortification and vivification present in the forms of Paul's injunctions into the Colossians, to put off certain things and put on others. And if we look at what Paul thinks this means in practice, we find that it involves a proper disposition of the soul. Thus the Colossians are told to put off passion, evil desire and covetousness, and to put on compassion, kindliness, loneliness, meekness and patience. All those are actions of the soul. However, we also find that it involves right forms of bodily activity, forms which are, again, both negative and positive. Thus, they are told negatively not to engage in fornication or any other kind of spiritual impurity, to put away slander, foul talk, and lying, and positively to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God, all bodily activities. And what this means is that when Paul tells the Corinthians to glorify God in your body, he's expressing in summary form his basic overall understanding of the nature of the Christian life. For to live rightly as a Christian involves bearing witness to God and what he has done by living out the baptismal pattern of death and resurrection in the actions of the body. That's what it means to be a Christian. So to sum up, godliness in the body means living out the evangelical freedom we've been given by God, the freedom to be free from sin and death, according 
to the universal moral law instituted by God and witnessed to by the Old and New Testaments. And living in this way involves a pattern of mortification and vivification, putting off and putting on in both soul and body. <laughs>